Welcome to Investing for Ocean Impact, the podcast providing the business case for conserving our ocean. I'm Dorothy Hepp. In this episode, we're discussing the roles of local stakeholders. The design and implementation of nature-based solutions ought to happen in close collaboration with and for local coastal communities. But how can this succeed if private investment is involved? We'll find out as we talk to three conservationists with decades of experience working on coastal and marine projects from Pakistan to Madagascar and Kenya. What has worked in the field? What are the common mistakes? And what do local communities actually think of the innovative finance mechanisms applied in some nature-based solutions? Today, my guests are Ali Raza Rizvi, Head of Climate Change at the IUCN. Hello, Dorothy and everyone. Lalawi Gret, Technical Advisor for Mangroves in Madagascar at the Coastal and Marine Restoration Organization, Blue Ventures. Hello, Dorothy, and hello, everybody. And James Cairo, Chief Scientist at the Kenya Marine and Fisheries Research Institute. Nice to see you and excited to be here tonight. Ali, I want to start with you. You've been in conservation for decades. How important is it to work with local communities? This is very critical for conservation. You know, having been in this sector for so long, I must say it's so critical that, you know, especially in the rural setting where we work, especially in coastal marine, you know, mangroves or seagrasses, their well-being is totally dependent on the conditions of the local environment and ecosystems. So it's critical to have them and bring their ownership into this because we go, I mean, the conservation sector, we are there for three years, five years. They are living over there for centuries and decades and their involvement is critical for success or failure and long-term sustainability and achieving objectives. Lalao, as a project developer, how important is local stakeholder engagement for you and your work? Uh, as you said, I'm working for Blue Ventures and uh, Blue Ventures' mission is uh, to support the coastal uh, fishers in rural area. And uh, one of our values is uh, community first. That means that the community play an important role for the successes of the marine uh, resources management. They should be on the heart of uh, project activities and uh, they should be the main stakeholder for the decision-making process and uh, they should have a voice on this management of the resources. Without community engagement, the governance is not, not, not successful. That is the lesson learned that I have from the ground. Can you tell us about an example where you really put community at the heart of the project? We at uh, Blue Venture is developing uh, community-led uh, mangrove carbon projects in the southwest of Madagascar. And um, we adopted a participatory approach. All of the community members were involved on the decision-making process they sit down together 
to identify the causes of mangrove loss, and uh, they come up together to identify the solution to sustainably manage the mangrove on their area. With their own initiative, they zone the mangrove into three different zones, the strict protection zone, the restoration zone, and also the sustainable use zone. And they established their own rule to govern the uses of the resources. So they don't wait for the government to set up the rule, but they put it with their own. Thank you, Lalao. James, what about you? How do you engage with local stakeholders in Kenya? Our engagement is through local governing structure. We recognize the community governance, who is the leader, and uh, how do they work together for the community. Otherwise, it can become really uh, noisy if you don't understand the leadership. And when you understand the community structures, you are able now to understand their needs. For instance, I, I mentioned for you, blue carbon financing on seagrasses. What we are doing here is we learn the problem, for instance, the problem of overfishing. What causes overfishing is because of the increased demand. So there are poor fishing activities in the seagrass area. And if we provide the solution, for instance, uh, using the certified nets, the fish traps, and then incentivizing the community to be able to applying the right gears. That way, we are addressing their problem and their needs at the same time. And could you elaborate a little bit? How do I have to imagine that? Do you have, you know, town hall meetings? Do you take some of the the local um, with you outside to the field? Explain us a bit how that works. We have learned to be doing this through adaptive management. We learn through our past failure and we build on our local success. For instance, our entry level to the community. How do we enter? Do we enter through the youth or do we enter through the women or the men? No. When you go through the community structured system whereby everybody is represented, they recognize their leadership. We don't influence their leadership. And this leadership was democratically elected. So we enter in and we we, we follow a democratic process. Uh, we do participatory questioning. And then we also generate participatory solution. Then we build on that. For instance, as I indicated, we work so closely with two systems, the mangroves and seagrasses. So we know, for instance, that you can see the mangrove are degraded because of increased pressure. But you cannot remove pressure without giving alternative. And that way, it, we have been able to reach out and they are always calling us to the next village. Ali, when you hear these stories from Lalao and James, how does that resonate with you? It's so important what they're sharing that this is the first sort of uh, principle of working with the communities. They should be engaged from the very beginning we should work with them and they should be part of the decision making. So in all this, trust building is so critical because if we look at overall, many times communities do have that fear. And I must say many a time, rightly so. For example, if it's a dense forest, tomorrow same people will come with the forest department and would declare it as protected areas. 
So their livelihoods, well-being, even excess could be denied because they won't be able to go in there, do for cutting, fuel wood, you know, collection or, you know. So those things do matter, especially in coastal communities, because in coastal communities, let's not forget many a time, they are poorest of the poor also. They are invisible poor, having no rights for deeds. They don't have civic amenities. I have seen in many developing countries, especially like uh, Southeast Asia, where in dense forests and other mangroves, local communities come over there, start living. They are economic migrants, many a time climate migrants. So they are very fearful and they don't trust. So trust building is critical. And that's why I'm quite happy when Lalala and James shared working with them and decision making. So that's critical. And another thing I would like to add that there should be incentives which are visible. You know, we should not just go that, you know, let's save mangroves and after 10 years they will save you. You know, what about right now? If a degraded area, you start planting mangroves, it may take 10 years or sometimes, you know, 15 years, 20 years. What about now? So incentives and especially livelihood, visible economic incentives, you know, let's not forget in any relationship, whether it is with local communities, local government and other, two plus two must be more than four. Then these relationships will be sustained and sustainability can be ensured. Lalao, do you agree with that? I could not agree more on that. Uh, it is important to uh, think about integrated management. How does the mangrove management impact the fisheries? Because the local community in the area where mangrove is, they are all fisher and depending on the fisheries. And uh, they understand that if a mangrove is restored, if a mangrove is preserved, that has impact on their fisheries. It is also important uh, to think about um, additional source of income for the local community when you do the management of, uh, of mangrove. For instance, in our area, we are working with the uh, private sector uh, to promote the seaweeds and uh, sea cucumber farming to provide additional income to the local communities on the fisheries. And they are not only relying on cutting mangrove to build charcoal, for instance, or to produce lime, but they have also additional source of income. And how do, do the partners that you work with react to the opportunity or maybe the risk of working with carbon credits? Uh, Okay, carbon credits in Madagascar, for instance, takes time to develop technically and uh, it depends mainly on the policy. In Madagascar, for instance, we don't have yet policy in place allowing us to proceed on the sale of a carbon credit and the community is impatient to wait for that revenue from the carbon sale. And uh, if we are not integrated the fisheries management within the carbon credit, maybe the community will not willing to wait until that carbon revenue is coming through. That is the important to have like additional source of income in addition to the carbon credit. And the carbon credit is kind of incentive to the local community 
that is not the final goal. The fisheries is the final goal and also the climate adaptation. Very good point. James, how do Kenyans react to the opportunities or risks of carbon credits as a revenue stream? The problem I find with carbon scheme, even as a developer, is the over-expectations it has raised within the community, within the government, and even in the international community. Everybody will be calling me and uh, wishing they want to plant mangroves. They want to plant 1,000 hectares of mangroves. But they're only looking at one end. They only want to see the vegetation back, but they are not looking at the holistic aspect of the mangrove environment. Mangrove is beyond carbon. Uh, my colleague uh, Lalau has talked about the fisheries function, for instance, the shoreline protection. Mangroves are worth up to 55,000 US dollars per hectare per year. But that is not tangible benefits. And now, when people bring a lot of over expectations, it is bringing a lot of challenge, even for the project developer. And that's why we need to look at what do mangrove provide beyond carbon in an achievement of SDGs, uh, Sustainable Development Goals, in, in achievements of biodiversity targets, in the achievements of uh, shoreline protection. And that can only be built by building education and awareness. And then we only use carbon as a reward scheme, not as an end point. James uh, said a very good thing. You know, when we go to economists, they say that this one hectare is, you know, $5,000 or $11,000 of economic value of mangroves. And then at the same time, we see poorest of the poor are living over there. So who reaps the benefits? So that's, so we need to see. And again, many a time, you know, that argument is given that, you know, for example, 80 different commercial type of fish, their life cycle is spent in mangroves and all this. Fish is mobile. You know, they live over there for their critical phase in life, but then they go out in the open sea. And poor communities who are engaged, for example, for their protection, they don't have seaworthy boats many a time. They just go to coastal fisheries. And who reaps the benefits? Rich people who have trawlers and all that. We need to come up with some financial mechanisms. What about taxation levies on the fish? that if fish catch comes in, there should be certain percentage which should go back to those communities who are conserving the forest where this fish spend some sort of their life cycle. You know, we need to see the holistic picture. Otherwise, it will remain a pipe dream where communities do something, they remain poor, or sometimes are forced to migrate. Because let's not forget, you know, seafront after land reclamation and all those are one of the most expensive lands in the world. If I may add, to connect with Ali, we need to look at the local benefits, the national benefit, and the global benefits of the mangrove. But now what's being emphasized for incentives is the local benefit. But in the holistics, when you look at the mangroves, they're becoming one of the most important forests everywhere you touch. And what we are now arguing uh, we are in the post-2020 global biodiversity framework. If mangroves are that important, 
Why are government not even increasing funding at the national level? Even there should be deliberate effort for the national government to put in money to protect their forests because of the national value they protect. They protect their people, they protect the children, they protect fisheries. 80% of the coastal fisheries, commercial coastal fisheries, will depend one way or another on mangrove. But this fish is not captured by the local people. So selling carbon alone is good because it's tangible, but the intangibles one, shoreline protection, biodiversity conservation, there should be a method of moving forward. And one of the moving forward is government increased investment, international increased investment, because mangroves are a root of our future. And Lala, how do you work in this sort of interplay between opportunities from private sector finance, but as we just heard, the need for the public, the government also to spend more money on these topics or on these uh, projects. Are you working in this national scene as well? Yes, we have to. We should work with the national. For instance, on the policy, policy is beyond our control or beyond community's control. So it is important to work with the government to reform the policy in Madagascar, for instance, and maybe not only in Madagascar, the policy uh, governing the mangrove is very, very, very complicated. And sometimes there is a conflict of interest between ministry who are involving on the mangrove. That problem needs to be solved because that puts communities in bad place. They are not safe when their, their right to manage the mangrove is not secured. On that point, uh, you know, national and public sector, you know, these policies at times are mutually contradictory also. You know, if we are talking about mangroves here, let's not forget many a time there are at least 15 to 20 different departments who are responsible and have authority in the coastal areas. You know, forest department may own, you know, the trees. Land belongs to revenue department in many cases. Coastal development authority has some other arrangement. Then the water, which is critical, fresh water flows. Those are with the irrigation and water department. And their policies are more, for example, hydropower or, you know, this fresh water is being wasted into the sea and they divert it and then mangroves die. So we need to do institutional analyses. What is critical for mangrove conservation and where government's own policies are mutually contradictory, which is the case almost in 80-90% of the cases where mangroves are. Because departments don't talk to each other. Policies are looked into isolation. So I'm responsible for agriculture. I will be accountable for agriculture and I would like to have all water available. So that's why with good intentions also, we are destroying you know, resources, especially mangrove in coastal areas, which are at the mercy of at least 20 different policies. And how sort of picking up on that, how do concepts and the approaches like nature-based solutions, will they help us overcome some of these challenges, both on the policy, but also on the working with the private sector side, Ali? 
Yes, but again, you know, the ownership needs to come from everyone. And that's why I think roundtable consultations before we jump into a project implementation, that's critical. Because nature-based solution is not just one sector if we come to administrative or policy level in the government. And let's not forget, decision makers, their attention span is the next election. So three to four years or five years at most, so they would do those things which can be done in that short period. Whereas nature-based solutions, any conservation mangroves, they take 10, 20 years. And in many countries, you know, when you complete the consultation, we have done it in many countries working with the local community, and then the officials change. You know, so you bring them on the same table, work with them for a couple of years, and then the minister change, then the whole bureaucracy changes, policies change. So it's not easy. And many times, as I said, very good, well-intended bureaucrats, you know, want to do, achieve their respective targets. And as they say, way to hell is paved with good intentions. I totally appreciate the challenges which James and Lola must be facing. But we need to come up with, you know, as James earlier said, you know, national level benefits. And then we seek how to achieve those, whereas we can put safeguards for the local communities and nature. So you, you mentioned, and all of you mentioned, working with local stakeholders takes time. So James, when you talk also with the private sector, when we talk, you know, leveraging finance from the private sector, do they understand that it takes time? Are they willing to pay more because they understand it takes time? The private sectors are looking for tangibles, benefits. But conservation doesn't pay that fast because if an insurance company, if you don't protect the mangrove which protect your client, then you're increasing your risk. But now to send that message, it becomes very difficult. But what's interesting is the change that has come over the last 10 years. Since 2017, uh, the Ocean Summit, there has been a lot of ocean uh, voluntary commitments, particularly on mangrove. And these commitments are not coming from government alone. NGOs, private sector, philanthropies, and the like. So with increased awareness and uh, education, we are hoping that, and even as we are moving for the second Ocean Summit in June, there will be an increased commitment across the sector. And I know we did not used to talk about Brookhaven. I remember 2013, we did not have Brookhaven. But now it has been engraved even in the national policy. It, when we are talking about the nationally determined contributions, countries are investing in mangrove. And even the long-term strategy for 2050 with zero emission, I'm so excited even after COP26 that countries, government, companies, private sectors are increasing their commitment. So there's a good sign, but we need to have time for learning. I could not agree more. We need more time on the ground. And uh, working with the private sector is uh, not easy <laughs> because the goal is sometimes different. Yeah, but uh, it is uh, important because, uh, for instance, in our ground, 
We are working on the private sector for the seaweed and uh, sea cucumber farming. And uh, it has been agreed that uh, they paid a percentage uh, from the kilos of uh, seaweed to the uh, local community association uh, to finance the governance of a marine protected area. That is important. It, there can be a negotiation can be made with, uh, with them. Because uh, if we work together, we can go far. Wonderful. Thank you, Lalau. Well, Ali, I wanted to give you the last question in sort of, we talked about the challenges, but if I were to give you a blank check of opportunities to really, you know, turn around some of these uh, discussion and invest into local community engagement, what would you do first? Yeah, having blank check is great, but <laughs> implementing that would be, yeah, the challenge. Issue is, you know, when we go with project-oriented approaches, you know, by design, we are going in our respective silos. Whereas communities, you know, well-being overall, which is dependent on local natural resources, that needs to go hand in hand with other aspects also. You know, at a landscape level, we need to go first into joint work planning. We need to see who is doing what, can there be joint work planning in the same area? Because resilience of the community's well-being is not just healthy ecosystems, it's also good health, good education, good access to the market, security, home, other things. When all these are there, you know, we have seen in developed countries, you know, good environment was possible, local ecosystems were protected because they did holistic planning. I have seen first-hand experience, you know, working with the communities, protecting 300 hectares of mangroves. And after four years, same area was planned and done another mega project by the government to have economic zone to be developed. And deep sea port was developed, which destroyed 303 times of that mangrove. So if we just go into project-oriented mode by design, it's self-defeating. We need to kill projects and have a programmatic approach where we know commerce ministry is doing what in that area, what are the next 10-year plans in the World Bank or Asia Development Bank or African Development Bank for that area. What, for example, I'm just using words our sister organization, UNICEF is doing over there, Care International is doing over there with health. Can we do joint work planning? That is the key. It will take time, but will help us to neutralize many variables which can nullify our investment. And one more point, which uh, we did not discuss, you know, in communities engagement, gender is so critical. You know, many a time, especially in coastal communities, male members, you know, those have gone to the cities to earn livelihoods and mostly it is the women with together with the fisher folk because many a time fisher folk are there or some are migrant young people and old people are doing you know fisheries coastal fisheries and all this so working with them is critical and on the other hand working with the local government at a mega level district level master planning is critical if we just go for mangrove conservation without knowing the fresh water will be cut down due to a hydropower plant disaster if we go over there for mangrove conservation and then in next 10 years, there will be high-rise building and the, all the waste will be coming to that. 
you know so that's what the conservation sector needs to learn ki you know ki we are not the world only you know ki where we exist and our work because it's well intended will definitely go into community you know participation and for their well being no it can be nullified by other mega projects so if we can learn to work with the mainstream development sector with the government departments and have a long 10 year at least planning where projects are contributing factor not the only aim of us i'm not saying it is a perfect solution but at least we can work towards having some long term sustainability Thank you to my guests this week, Ali Raza Rizvi, Lalaure Gret, and James Cairo. Tune in next week as we ask other actors in the world of finance about their role in generating nature-based solutions on the ground. What role can the world's biggest insurers play? How important are proper disclosure mechanisms? And what signals does the world of finance still need to see from international policy to take quick and swift action? Investing for Ocean Impact is a fresh air production on behalf of IUCN's Blue Natural Capital Financing Facility. It was produced by Phil Sansom with production assistance from Michelle Burnett. Follow or subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to find out more about what the BNCFF does, please visit our website bluenaturalcapital.org. Until next time, I'm Dorothy Herr. Thanks for listening.